Good evening, I'm Ruth Moore, Theatre and Performance Officer at Torch, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. It's Tuesday the 8th of March 2022 and I'm in London for tonight's performance at the Harold Pinter Theatre of Serrano de Bergerac. Jamie Lloyd has brought his Olivier award-winning production starring James McAvoy back to the West End for a limited run. Serrano closes this weekend before heading to Glasgow's Theatre Royal. It's a revival of Edmund Rostand's 1897 play, adapted by Martin Grimp. Critics have made much of the style, and the company tells us that the story goes like this. Fierce with a pen and notorious in combat, Serrano almost has it all. If only he could win the heart of his true love. There's just one big problem. He has a nose as huge as his heart. Will a society engulfed by narcissism get the better of de Bergerac? Or can his mastery of language set Roxanne's world alight? Oxford research student Nora Baker is here with me to give us her take on the production afterwards. We're going to head in to take our seats. Okay, so we're picking up the discussion after the show, and in fact we are picking up the discussion um, on the Oxford Tube on our way back to Oxford from London, so you're picking up that kind of background noise, that's what it is. But we wanted to capture the discussion straight after having and I've got Nora with me, so Nora, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yes, indeed I can. Um, so yes, my name is Nora Baker and um, I am a DPhil student, a PhD student in um, Early Modern French in Oxford. And um, my research is actually on um, memoirs written in the latter half of the 17th century. Um, but why I was interested in um, looking at this story, this performance of Cyrano because um, Cyrano de Bergerac is um, a writer from the early portion of the 17th century um, who maybe would have been a little bit forgotten about today were it not for the fact that in 1897 um, Edmond de Rostand um, wrote this kind of play about his life where he uh, kind of invented this love story where Cyrano was in love with his cousin Roxanne and he wrote letters to her but pretending to be a different person who was uh, Christian so and that kind of story is very uh, the, those kind of tropes associated with that kind of hiding behind this persona is very well known now and um, we have a lot of adaptations of this um, Cyrano story um, despite the fact that it's not necessarily grounded in actual historical details if we look at um, you know the real man Cyrano de Bergerac we don't know if we don't know exactly about the size of his nose. I mean, there are portraits of him um, from the 1650s where it seems like he has a somewhat protruding nose, but um, I don't think that, you know, we can know for definitely we kind of gone into deals exactly about um, the size of his nose. Um, and most of what we know about him actually comes from a preface to um, one of his works, uh, which was written by his friend, um, Le Play, um, and it was published kind of shortly after his death, I believe, in 1657. Um, and it was this story that he wrote about uh, traveling to the moon and to the sun. Um, and he's kind of considered this very early science fiction writer. Um, but he, uh, at the same time, he's quite a mysterious character. <laughs> um, it's really interesting <laughs> that um, what's what's become known much more generally about Cyrano de Bergerac is not actually hugely based in in what we, we know about him factually so 
well, let's start talking. I think we'll probably come back to that. So let's start talking about the um, adaptation which we've just seen. Um, the critics have gone quite wild for it, it's fair to say. Um, James McAvoy has received awards for his performance in it. Um, just as a of your audience member, what did you find to love in the production? How would you characterize it? I, I think the energy in the theatre was just really palpable. You know, all the actors were all extremely skilled. You know, I could see um, James McAvoy's face going red, you know, in moments of rage and, you know, kind of their, their expressions and all. It just really, I really felt like I connected with what was happening on stage. Um, you know, and I, I didn't really feel this from um, the story at all. Um, so I thought that was really, um, you know, really, really engaging. Um, and I was really interested in kind of how they used light, um, you know, throughout the play, you know, at certain dramatic moments, um, the entire place went black and, um, you know, you kind of very much plunged into the space of uncertainty, um, which is very powerful as well. Yeah. Yeah, so to, to kind of contextualise it, it's a, you could say that this is a, a modern adaptation because we see the characters in modern dress and there's a real hip-hop rap vibe to the way in which Martin Crump has made this adaptation and called it a free adaptation of the original play. Um, but we're also located clearly in time and place. So how did that strike you? Yeah, I was really interested. And that's also one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of see this adaptation in particular, um, because they do say at the beginning of the play, um, you know, it shows on kind of the stage, it kind of shows 1640. So we are located in 17th century France. And, um, you know, ref numerous references are made to the fact that they're in Paris. And yet, you know, no one really speaks French in it. They do kind of, and, and at one point, um, there's a, a part at the beginning of the play where um, Cyrano gets annoyed as an actor um, who's performing um, on, on stage and he doesn't like him. But the, the play that um, the actor plays within um, this adaptation of Cyrano is Hamlet, although they pronounce it Hamlet, and it's this kind of very <laughs> strong kind of English accent. Um, but they mentioned this by Guillaume Shakespeare, which that was interesting because um, Guillaume is the French um, version of William, so it was kind of kind of a not a wink at the kind of French origins of the play. And yet, in um, in the actual original um, French version of the play, the the play that, that happens within the play is um, called Clopise, uh, I think. So, and it was actually written by um, you know, a famous French writer, um, Babel, uh, not Shakespeare. <laughs> so they kind of changed it to Shakespeare to kind of make that a little bit more accessible as he's kind of a stalwart of English literature, um, you know, someone that people would be familiar with, um, you know, instead, so which made sense. Um, but, you know, they still kind of had a, a little wink at this kind of the French origins. Um, and, and we also see this bit where um, one of the characters refers to the Académie Française sitting in um, one part of the theatre. Um, and I guess it's because a lot of the audience might have heard about the Académie Française, you know, which is still in operation today, of course. Um, you know, it kind of has this reputation, this kind of archaic institution. Um, whereas then when talking about kind of the character of Roxanne, and she's sort of associated in the original play with um, this group of, um, you know, French female intellectuals from the mid-17th century, who are known as Precious, um, and they kind of had these literary salons where they talked a lot about, um, 
you know, kind of romance stories and, and fiction. Um, instead, in this version of the play, she is um, a student and she, she's a student at the university. Always kind of focused on the fact that she's associating with students rather than with these questions. Um, but she does again allude to in the in the a narrative. She does kind of allude to this kind of background, which because um, at one point she says, "Oh, I was precious before," so I kind of picked up on that. I said, "Oh, that, that must be she's referring to the precious." I think, uh, but that might not be something that being really obvious to. Some people who are watching, but I guess it's, again, it's kind of this wink. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been really interesting actually talking to you. We we spoke a little bit as we we headed for the bus, um, and the the preciseness of some of the details which you picked up on because of what you know of the wider context. Um, that yeah, it was it was clear to me that quite a lot of it wouldn't immediately land with with the majority of the audience, but very pleasing to find that it's in there. Um, so were there other ways in which they, they, they located the play or kind of portrayed the, the historical events within it that struck you particularly? Um, yeah, so I think one thing that um, kind of caught my attention as well was towards the end, um, you know, Roxanne talks about reading um, a book by uh, Madame de Lafayette. I don't think they actually referred to her by name, but um, it's called the uh, Princesse de Clèves, the Princess of, of Clèves. And, um, you know, she says, oh, and they say it's even written by a woman. And it was interesting to kind of bring that in. But um, I think that moment in the play is actually set in 1655. But I don't think that book was actually published till 1678. Maybe it was serialized before that, but it seemed like a little bit anachronistic. But it was interesting that they kind of gave that nod to, again, the kind of period. Um, and, and also to women's writing of the period, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and in the, I think in the original play, um, certainly in the Gerard Depardieu adaptation, um, there's a bit where Roxanne says she's going off to attend a lecture on um, the Carte de Tendre, which was this um, fictional map of um, women's in love and kind of all the emotions that people would feel when they're in love devised by um, this female writer um, who was part of these kind of precious group um, and um, it, it sort of kind of talks about it, it kind of has this imaginary geography of all the kind of different emotions one goes through when they're falling in love with someone including like the lake of indifference and, and things like this um, and it's all kind of associated with emotions um, but in this um, adaptation they don't mention that because probably that wouldn't be that familiar to the audience but instead um, Roxanne does say that she's going to a lecture on um, the representation of women in early modern poetry um, which and it's kind of kind of a similar kind of angle maybe but um, you know and I, and I quite like something kind of again gives this wink but um, it's something a little bit different but yet more accessible um, and um, and also quite relevant to um, to the overall setting, yeah. Yeah. That's quite nice, yeah. Yeah. And then how about the character of Roxanne and the way that she's portrayed overall? Because they make a lot of interesting choices there, I think. Yeah, definitely. I and mean, she's you know, very confident and um, you know, she's very much kind of shown to be this absolute go getter. Um I, I kind of was interested in the fact that she was also quite tall just in terms of the, the casting choice. Um, you know, she she definitely wasn't um, you know, she definitely kind of didn't shirk away from, from anything. She always kind of stood up straight. Um, and um, yeah, I think, you know, she seemed quite brave, um, you know, very much 
depicted in this very kind of definite, confident manner, um, which I think is, you know, it's kind of central to the character as well. But I think um, in some previous adaptations, sometimes maybe she can seem a little bit um, flighty, a little bit too enamored with words rather than kind of reality, as it were, and kind of too caught up in this kind of precious mentality, which is sort of which has been kind of mocked um, by um, you know some authors, for example, um, Moliere is um, another author of the 17th century who um, is actually mentioned in, in this adaptation as someone who, and in, in many others as well, as someone who um, kind of plagiarised Cyrano um, in some of his plays, but uh, we don't know if that actually happened or not, but one thing we do know that that he wrote this play called Le Precious Petit Cool, where he sort of makes fun of these these women. Um, but that aspect of Roxanne's character is not really alluded to in this version of the play at all. She's always quite determined and knowledgeable, and um, you know, she, she makes a lot of references to women's role in society and um, their their relations with men. And um, she talks all about you know how she's worried about um, Christian might see her as an object. Um, you know, and she doesn't want to be just the object of his affections, but you know, someone with a real heart and soul, and um, which, which sort of plays in nicely to the whole, you know, idea of kind of appearances versus reality, which is central to the play. Um, so I found that really interesting. Yeah, and um, as well, I thought it was interesting that the character of Ragano uh, is um, also female in this, um, and normally referred to by the first name Leila as well. Um, and uh, you know, so so it was kind of a way of bringing in another female character, sort of secondary uh, supporting actress as well. And um, they kind of play off each other. Um, and, and she kind of has this poetry circle. Um, she's kind of uh, teaching people in that. Um, it was really interesting. Yeah, and they very much use that character to um, undercut sometimes the potential pomposity of, of poetry. Yeah which then leaves us free to really go with Roxanne when she, she engages to such a high degree with the words um, in the letters and yeah. Yeah, I like what you're uh, talking about the pomposity of poetry as well because I think um, something that was really nice about this adaptation is they kind of try and make things very accessible as well and you know they incorporate a lot of different styles when it comes to sort of language as well. Um, you know, there's kind of some rap elements, as you mentioned, um, and, and free verse and spoken words. And, you know, sometimes things, I mean, a lot of the time it's in rhyming verse, but sometimes it's not. And, you know, our attention is really kind of drawn to those moments, I think. Um, for example, when Cyrano's kind of confessing his love, um, although unseen to Roxanne, that kind of stands out as a moment that's not just rhyming. Um, first, so it was quite um, notable. Yeah. 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 So you talked earlier on about what we uh, think we know about Serrano Bergerac's appearance and, and what perhaps was the actual historical fact. So maybe do you want to talk a bit about what we saw or didn't see in this adaptation and what you made of that? Absolutely, and I think that's really a key element, um, you know, of this particular adaptation. Um, it's quite noticeable that James McAvoy doesn't wear any prosthetics um, on his nose, and it, but in fact, you know, that kind of highlighted the attention that I paid to his kind of appearance 
inches of his nose even more than perhaps if he had been wearing a prosthetic, you know, when it's just something, you know, disposable can, that can be taken off. Um, but whereas, um, whereas we didn't actually see any kind of visible, um, you know, aspect of this kind of physical, if you want to say deformity, um, we didn't actually see that, but all the other characters on stage were constantly referring to it, and, and he was himself, of course, as well. Um, and I kind of maybe kind of look at it maybe even more closely than I would have if, if he had been wearing something, because I was kind of looking at it closely thinking, am I just not seeing a prosthetic? Is it kind of smaller than I expected? Um, but no, it was um, the choices to, to not use it. Um, which I, and I thought that was very, uh, quite a good choice um, in that, you know, we've kind of made this question, well, is this um, insecurity all in his head? Well, it seemed like it wasn't because it was something that the other characters teased him about as well. Um, but we also had this mirror on stage where, he, you know, he looked at himself and it was a mirror that was sort of distorted as well. So it kind of, kind of brought back to this whole idea of appearances and reality, um, which again is very central to um, and it kind of makes you think, oh, well, everyone maybe sees themselves in the mirror differently to, to how other people see them. Um, so, you know, it really kind of highlighted that aspect of it. Um, and I do know that in other versions of the same story, you know, sometimes it, the choice is also made not to go with prosthetics. I know that in the, the current um, film adaptation that's in the, south of the cinema at the moment with Peter Dinklage, um, he doesn't have any prosthetics. Um, and of course, we know that he does um, have dwarfism. Um, but I actually read an interview with, with him where he said, you know, that's not, he doesn't necessarily want people's attention to kind of be drawn to that as, um, you know, kind of a stand in for his nose. He's rather kind of trying to play up the fact that this could be, you know, this character of Cyrano could be anyone with an insecurity. Um, you know, but they want to hide behind someone else. And in fact, I you know, when I was kind of looking up a little bit of information about people's knowledge about Cyrano today, um, I came across this term, um, which I actually hadn't heard of before, but it's a cyber Cyrano, uh, which apparently is when you pay someone to create a dating profile for you um, to kind of give you a better appearance. Oh, wow. So I guess kind of um, attached to this idea of catfishing in that. Um, but yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, and I know that the Netflix um, film, The Half of It, which is kind of a setting of Cyrano in a high school setting. I think it's, um, I actually haven't seen that yet, but um, it's, you know, the, I think there's a girl writing a letter and, and she's gay and that's, that's kind of the uh, sort of the insecurity lies within that rather than in any kind of physical aspect as far as I know. Um, so it's also an interesting take on it. Um, and it just shows that, you know, that oftentimes kind of these classic stories you know, they take on their kind of very famous status for a reason so they can be applicable to many different situations. Um, but yeah, in relation to how the play kind of showed this theme of appearances versus reality on a whole, um, you know, that, that was done in in many respects. It wasn't just in relation to the nose itself. Um, and we do have a moment in the end, as, as you were mentioning um, to me earlier, Ruth, as well, where um, Roxanne kind of reaches across and touches the nose and kind of make this connection with it, um, which was quite, you know, we were kind of thinking, oh, does that kind of disrupt the illusion? Or is, this, or is this kind of connected to her seeing 
him as he really is, um, you know, and the man behind it. Um, so it kind of really makes you think about these kind of things. Um, but there were other um, times in the play as well when things were talked about on stage without us actually seeing them take place. Um, for example, you know, uh, um, Cyrano tells Roxanne not to tear up a letter, but we don't actually see her even holding a letter, but he, they're just standing. But, um, you know, the fact that they talk about it, it sort of encourages the audience to kind of um, visualize these things happening inside their minds, um, you know, which, which I thought was really, really interesting. They kind of play with this kind of auditory um, aspect of, of, of staging things. It's not just purely visual, um, although they do, you know, make interesting choices with the lighting as well, as you kind of mentioned earlier. Um, but there's definitely kind of these kind of sonorous aspects really really um effective i thought yeah yeah what, for what was a very visual production they were playing an awful lot with how much they were telling us rather than showing us yeah. um which takes us back to what you were saying about the the way in which words are played with and, and played with to engage roxanne and and us to, to be taken into the the world that's being conjured yeah um yeah and uh that was really interesting and um, yeah I think one more thing as well that kind of struck me was the was the costumes and, and that's kind of related to the visual aspect of the play of course um, but also you know it, it, it's kind of related to sort of how identity how one sees oneself and how the world sees you um, and we're saying there's very much kind of a, a colour scheme involved there's kind of a blue tint everywhere a lot of people are wearing denim and um, a lot of the soldiers in the army are wearing kind of camouflage clothes um, you know which you might kind of think about that in relation to how people are hiding from the world but um, what, I, what I thought was interesting about that is that even though the characters were dressed quite similarly they all seemed to kind of have their own personalities um, you know and I, and I felt like as an audience member I could kind of identify them and separate them out quite clearly um, yeah, it seemed like a, a definite choice on the on part of the director, so yeah, we expected that as well. Yeah. Um, one last, just general questions finished, I guess. So it, it really felt like in the auditorium tonight that people were hungry for every opportunity to laugh and they were really getting some belly laughs from the places where humour was used. And equally, whether there was the possibility of being held really spellbound by one of the intense moments, the audience really went with that. Um, wondering like uh, yeah how did it kind of um, work for you as, as something to engage the emotions over the course of the evening and maybe do you think that anything has changed in that in audiences since Covid or where are we now? Oh that's a really good question um, yeah I think you know I found a lot to laugh at and a lot to you know feel very emotionally invested in um, I think you know experience of COVID has sort of made things feel a little bit surreal because there's this whole kind of element of deja vu in a sense when I'm going into a theatre because it's something that we kind of used to do maybe a lot more often before um, lockdowns came into our lives and, and now kind of going back to it it's like oh yes I have memories of being here before but um, the experience is a little bit different now especially perhaps if you're wearing a mask um, and um, yeah you know it does feel a little bit surreal at times, um, 
even sometimes, you know, you kind of have to get used to seeing people on stage not wearing masks as well and kind of interacting with each other. Um, but yeah, I think definitely I felt like, you know, I was very emotionally engaged, um, particularly at the end and particularly when um, rhyming verse was kind of done away with it, which stood out in contrast to the majority of the of the discourse, which was rhymed um, the kind of the kind of draw, drew back your attention to things as it were um, and as well um, I think in, in the moments where you know we see quite tragic things happening I think you know that, that really had me spellbound and um, you know, there were there were a lot of interesting artistic decisions um, for example you know sometimes when characters weren't actually speaking but they were still present on the stage and so we have after Christian dies um, we actually have him the actor who plays him still standing there in the scene that's set 15 years after his death between Roxanne and Cyrano so it seems like he's kind of there as a ghostly presence and um, I thought that was uh, really nice and it, but it was kind of poignant and it sort of emphasised the fact that he was kind of there uh, this kind of obstacle between them but not necessarily a tangible one um, and even if his presence wasn't acknowledged you could still feel like it was there yeah yeah and um, Nora thank you so much for joining us this evening thank you so <laughs> yeah. much for giving us your perspectives on the show thank you <laughs>